Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. My name's Keir Milburn, and today I'm doing a special microdose with Fred Sharman, the author of Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space. Hi, Fred. How's it going? Hi, Keir. So let me just explain why I'm talking to Fred. I've only met Fred in the last uh, week or so, and in fact, this is the first time we're talking. A couple of weeks ago, we did a full trip ACFM with Jeremy and Nadia, and we talked about space, space in its wider aspects, the concept of space and how um, the politics of space is, is suddenly seems quite relevant. But as part of that, we talked about outer space and why there seems to be a renewed focus on outer space over the last perhaps six months or, or so, or at least in my head has been a renewed focus, perhaps is longer than six months in actual fact. And then somebody recommended that I read Fred's book. Now, Fred's book's not out. It's coming out in November. Uh, and I, they, I got sent a, um, an advanced copy. I'm very glad I did because it's a great book. I really, really, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and so we thought, look, this is it's, this is a way. There's so much more to talk about in terms of outer space. We've only scratched the the surface. Um, that's not a very good metaphor when we were talking about outer space, <laughs> but we've only touched the surface of outer space. We've only peeked out the airlock. Yeah, <laughs> we've only sniffed the the, the 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 extremities of the airlock. We want to get straight through the airlock and right out into into the the, the dark mysteries of outer space. So, Fred, I'm really glad I got sent your book. I'm really glad you've, you've agreed to, to talk to us. Perhaps the best way to start the conversation is, is for you to talk, to give your own version of, of, of how you see the focus of the book and what your motivations were for writing it. Yeah, sure. I mean, my, my sort of um, native field is architecture and urban design. So that's where I'm coming from as, you know, a researcher and a writer and a, and a teacher. Um, so, you know, what... What I've been interested in doing the past couple of years is like connecting people from my world in the kind of mainstream of spatial practice, if you like, to some of these ideas about creating whole worlds from scratch that come into play when we're talking about living in outer space. So um, I think that in general, you know, I found that uh, people who practice architecture and who practice making space on Earth have a lot to learn from people who are working in space science and kind of vice versa. So it's been a kind of mission of mine to like help that conversation happen by like moving people and ideas and things and concepts back and forth between those two fields. So um, as part of that, you know, I, I became, um, I, I worked for a few years on a, a previous book, which was a, really about this 1970s moment that was in which like, NASA convened these groups of interdisciplinary people to come and design these huge cities spinning in free floating in space, you know, not on another planet, not on the moon, not on Mars, but um, in orbit. And this was going to be like the 25 year plan for, you know, the human space program um, back circa 1975. Right. So we would be doing it about now. Um, so that uh, I got really sort of deeply interested in that moment in history and all the sort of things that you know, all the really specific things about what that would have been like, what what people would have been worried about, what they would have been hopeful about, what was going on in culture, you know, visual culture, aesthetic science fiction. And so um, with this book, I had the chance to kind of zoom out and go, OK, what are some other moments that seem to like reveal similarly interesting stuff about um, how and why, you know, we, we as a sort of human species, how and why humans think that they sh could and should go and do this as a big project, right? So, um, so the current book sort of takes a 150-year scope and um, a broad approach, but sort of takes a few core examples in that 150-year period. So starting with the Russian cosmists um, back in the late 19th century um, and onward to... Um, some of the sort of strange things that were going on in the UK around World War II with J.D. Bernal, who was a physicist and a material scientist, also writing these really 
fascinating, like quasi mystical texts about the future. And then into the kind of, you know, also in the, the World War II period, all the tangled fraught history surrounding Werner von Braun and his sort of transfer of not only German Nazi rocket science, but, you know, in many ways, you know, sort of the, the strange logic of the terror weapon, um, his transfer of, of some of those ideas from Nazi Germany to the United States and the foundation of the American space program. And then onward towards you know, bringing in science fiction again, Arthur C. Clarke is a figure that I've always found fascinating in, in his particular approach to, you know, the strangeness of going to other worlds and making other worlds. And then the kind of normalcy of, of uh, you know, I sort of treat NASA as like one figure, like how, how can we diagnose NASA as, as a person? Like what would be the characteristics of that person if we treated the institution and sort of analyze the institution in that way? Um, and that, I do that through the lens of the black astronaut. And um, then, you know, Gerard O'Neill, who was leading these 1970s studies, and then to a kind of contemporary moment where I think that, um, you know, we're finding ourselves again in this kind of hinge point where ideas about going to space are changing. Um, certainly, as you say, in the past six months, we've seen, I've lost count of how many billionaires have been to space now at this point, um, just in 2021 alone. But I, I think we really are at a, at a point where, um, not only, you know, are new and weird things happening, but, um, but we have like new and weird ideas associated with the whole kind of, um, the whole bigger project, right? The project has kind of changed again, I think. So it's a good time to start talking about this stuff. Yeah, thanks. I mean, perhaps we should go towards the end of that list of, of um, of ideas about outer space, the most current one, and perhaps we can work back. <laughs> um, because the, the the latest one seems the most depressing to me. Actually, no, perhaps Werner von Braun's picture of um, impending impending war as the impending as the, doom, yeah, yeah, impending doom as the as the um, necessity to go into space and construct um, weapons um, weapons that can have oversight of the whole Earth. Yeah, uh, a little bit like we've. I mean, we've gone a little bit that in that direction via drone warfare, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, perhaps that's occupied that part part of the imagine, imaginary. But yeah, so one of the one of the reasons we want to talk about space was this. You know, Jeff Bezos gone into space, then Richard Branson going into space. Yes, Britain has got <laughs> its own cranky uh, oligarch with too much money. And you know, so and we were having a bit of debate on, the, on, on when we did when we talked about it on the, on ACFM about you know what, what's going on with all of this. What what's motivating these people? Um, in, when you talk about you, you talk about Elon Musk and you compare him to, to sort of Jeff Bezos and you think about the their, their in fact their business practices in a wider sense and how they may map onto their imaginaries about yeah about space. But in a way, you're you you're, you sort of you're taking that 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 their business practices, but you're almost taking them at their own world as well. <laughs> you're taking them yeah. serious about what they say. I mean, should we do that? Is that what is going on with with with, with Bezos and these oligarchs going into space? Uh, should we take their own their own uh, word about what why they're doing this and their own imaginary? Or should we look at their perhaps you know the sort of perhaps political economy reasons behind it? What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's sort of both and 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 I think that's one thing I find. Um, you know, at, at, at all of these moments, there's there's often like a gap between um, expression and intent, uh, and and between like the way the way an individual kind of um, construction of a world relates to a, a bigger world outside. Um, so I think in the in the case of of Bezos for sure, and and Musk too, it, it's not. I, I don't think it's talked about enough that these that these two figures are, are actually true believers. They really, they're, they're mm. kind of high on their own supply. And I think that's and, what I was asking actually. Yeah. 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 They, um, they're serious about for different reasons, for very, very different reasons and with very different sort of methodologies, but they're serious about, you know, like working towards a bigger project of a human future in space. And of course they see themselves as, as pivotal to that future. And and, you know, probably taking, you know, not only, um, not only key kind of um, planning roles, but probably key leadership roles and, and however that might play out. But, uh, you know, they, they're serious and they should, you know, the ideas should be taken seriously for all the silliness that, that goes along with Bezos wearing a cowboy hat, you know, in his rocket and um, Elon getting into arguments on Twitter with, uh, with, with Jeff and with different people in the, in the Russian space program and elsewhere. Um, 
Well, and and him, uh, you know, shooting a car into space. It's hard to say. Shooting, his, shooting <laughs> his car into space, his yeah. own car, his own red sports car, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, this stuff analyzes itself, right? Um, so, but but you know, at the same time, like they're they're engaged in the practice of making new time and new space, right? I, I appreciated in in the uh, space episode the extended discussion about time and space. They're, they're not only colonizing, we can talk about that word colonizing, they're, they're not only colonizing outer space, but they're colonizing the future. So, um, so it's worth sort of looking at how they do that elsewhere and how, you know, for, for example, like a, a few people have written about how Elon Musk's companies are, um, if you sort of analyze their practices, they're, they're really just sort of normalizing a status quo. It's, it's, you know, in Starlink, it's like more internet, faster internet. Okay, great. You know, um, the Tesla is like, okay, it's, it's still a car. It's still a, a normal car. It's not going to threaten you. It's not going to, uh, well, unless you're a pedestrian and you're out of the range of the camera, I guess, but, <laughs> yeah. um, it's not, it's not a scary sort of, um, uh, technological artifact. It's designed to look like a cool car, but Hey, it's also electric, right? So everything will be fine. We can keep driving to work. We can keep, we can put solar panels on our suburban house, we can, you know, get faster internet from these orbital satellites that are, you know, uh, obstructing Earth-based astronomy nowadays. So there's just this like more, more, more of the same logic in, in, in this. If you sort of again analyze all of Musk's companies as you know pieces of a world, pieces of a potential future world, whereas Bezos wants to sort of dominate every level of sort of you know what what a lot of people call the stack. Uh, he wants to own the servers that you know show you the book for sale. He wants to um, to uh, subcontract you know the trucks that deliver it to you. He wants to buy the robot company that sorts it out in the warehouse. Um, so the, every sort of layer of that reality of that process is is under you know very close control, you know, and to the detriment of the humans in the system, right? Because they're the ones who have to pee in a bottle and they're the ones who have to deal with, you know, stress and strain injuries from working in warehouses. Um, so, so the human in the system is just another sort of, um, uh, component that seeks to be optimized. But of course, you know, optimization is, is a kind of trap. So, um, so there, there are two very different worldviews and there are two very different potential futures bound up in those worldviews when you start to, I think that become apparent when you start to, um, to take these two figures seriously and look at their actions and their intents. Yeah. It might be good to take, to, to split them and, 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 and think about the sort of, because the way I sort of read your book, Fred, is that like, you know, that this, the practice of thinking about living in outer space and also of course for short periods or well, actually for, for, for longer periods on the space station, actually living in outer space, you know, it, it acts as a sort of, as a sort of screen upon which we, we we project our imaginaries about living on 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 planet Earth, and it, it goes a bit further than that because it's, it's, it's you know there's there are actual practices of worlding, if you like, and like this practice of worlding mm-hmm. is abstracting the key sort of elements that make up a world, basically what you need to survive, etc. And then of course, you know that that projects back onto the, onto your practices on planet Earth. You know that's the sort of my, my really glossed over reading of the of the book. We can get into that a bit later, but I just wanted to come to sort of Elon Musk's version of of yeah of this world in which you know outer space will just be like planet Earth. Basically, we're going to export all of our you know the lifestyles that we have on Earth into outer space, etc. And you can sort of figure that on the idea that like you solve climate change by having electric cars. And there's, there's there's huge resource implications involved in that, right? That just doesn't make any sense. It's a bit like it's hyperloop where you just right the hyperloop which ends up being a tunnel for Teslas. That's just crazy. <laughs> That's absolutely crazy. We have these things called trains, are much more efficient, etc. You know, the obvious solution is massive expansion of public transport trains in particular. And so there's this thing about when 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 Elon Musk is like colonizing the future, you know. Um, what comes into question straight away is the universality of that future, right? That, that that future presumably isn't for everybody, right? Do you know what I mean? Not everybody can have a Tesla. There's just not enough resources on the planet for for that. So that you know it implies the fact that the the future that they've got in mind is a future in which um, all of the inequalities 
that exists now will be replicated. Basically, that's the the Musk sort of idea of the future. Perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps Jeff Bezos is is a universal one because basically he'll control everything, and we'll have to rent absolutely everything off him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. You know, it makes me think of the way that that. Amazon sets itself up as as a, the place, the store for everything, right? The the place where you know all kinds of people can find whatever they're looking for, um, and it's the the um, the almost uh, disordered or inhuman logic of of the fulfillment center, of the warehouse itself, where you know things are categorized by type. You might find a CD next to you know a, a dustpan next to um, you know a book, right? All in the same warehouse shelf. They're organized by like how often they sell or how often they need to be retrieved or moved through the system. So, um, so yeah, there's something, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't uh, thought about that kind of question of like universality and the kind of the, the sorting of everything into, into everything else that goes along with the kind of the Bezos worldview, whereas Musk is, is very much just sort of making the things that he thinks are cool. (laughs) Right. It's not, there's no audience other than, other than, himself in many ways like um and of course he does perform you know in a way that's very different from bezos but the imagined subject is really important here and that that i think is Mm. is is universal to you know to any of these conversations about any of these moments that um you know it's something that that we learn from architecture is that the design of a space you know becomes implicitly the design of the type of subject or person that's invited into it or that's produced by it even, you know, mm-hmm. my house has stairs. Certain people wouldn't be able to use those stairs. Um, they wouldn't be able to use my house in the same way that I do. So in a very real sense, you know, when worlds are made from scratch, that question of, of who the subject is becomes very, very fraught, but also very, very important and impossible to ignore. If we're even designing the atmosphere, you know, which is something that, that architects do. Architects specify the air. Um, we have standards that you can look up in books for, you know, how that air, how humid it should be, how fast it should be moving, what temperature it should be for a given environment. And so, um, so what, what's the gravity, right? So when every aspect of the environment is designed, then every aspect of that subject is designed. So it becomes very important to, to think carefully when doing that. It's not to say that we can't make spaces that are inclusive, but we have to do that with intentionality. Yeah, I like that. So it's it's sort of like these these this colonization of the future. You know, it gets built into the to to the the architectural infrastructures of the present in a way. I mean, it's a bit like um, one of the things I'm quite interested in, and part of part of my job is sort of like institutional design. Mm. Um, and thinking about the sort of the institutional logics that get built into institutions and how they have a sort of colonization of the of the future. So we can think about things such as. Foucault's concept of governmentality, for instance, you know, the sort of subjects that get produced by the logic of of markets or the imposition of like pseudo markets into in, in, into institutions and these sorts of things, which which automatically to me says, well, we should we should think about um, how we can anticipate different sort of perhaps more open and democratic futures within the institutions that we build. Of course, that goes one stage further when we think about it in terms of worlding, right? And and like you know the you know the 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 anticipation of different kinds of worlds, etc., that we might want to, what we might want to build, and for that you have to, you have to abstract the key dimensions that you want to to focus on. Air is probably a given, but like you know, when 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 you're talking about longer periods in in the book, you talk about you know trying to anticipate things such as culture, etc., and yeah. you know how you know cultural production and these sorts of things and the sorts of cultures that would be would be produced, which I find really really interesting. Perhaps another way into that is is you know, are there sort of brute facts about life in an outer space, or the, the 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 difficulties of life in outer space that would basically that would override the imaginaries of the the oligarchs? And what I'm thinking about there is, um, if people were going to work in outer space, you know, work which is dangerous tends to produce bonds of strong solidarity. And in fact, you know, his, the historically strongest unions have tended to be around very dangerous work, such as mining right. uh, 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 and historically, you know, dock workers and these sorts of, well, uh, and actually, you know, perhaps the closest analogy, which would be seafarers and mm-hmm. and sailors, etc. perhaps not in terms of, of, of unionization, but in terms of, you know, the sort of golden age of sort solidarity of- Solidarity or, yeah. Yeah, th- those mm-hmm. sorts of bonds of solidarity. And so you, it makes you think perhaps there are, you know, 
And in fact, you hint at that about this, this other, the, these other, the, the, the constitution of outer space that you, you talked about, which I think is from the seventies, which has things such as mutual aid and 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 the idea that space or outer space is a global commons built into it. Sort of two different sorts of of worlds, or perhaps one is more aligned with the brute realities than the other. I don't know what you think. Oh, I, I I'm just endlessly fascinated by um, the outer space treaty, which is. Which is, you know, what as you say, what some people refer to as the, the constitution of outer space, and yeah, it's 1967. Even um, it, you know, predates moon landing, and it really was the kind of first attempt to sort of set up kind of. On the one hand, you know, they're trying to set up ground rules for the space race, not knowing, you know, not knowing who would win, right? And and so wanting to secure mutual advantage for for all the players, but what you end up with are these really utopian propositions. Um, in the document on the one hand, um, you know, and, and they're tied to, as you say, like the, the uh, recognition that being in space creates this sort of shared um, danger. It, it, it's inextricable from this condition of shared danger, right? Constant danger. And um, so it writes that solidarity into uh, first principles, into international law, essentially. Um, untested international law, of course. None of this has seen the inside of a court yet, but um, but the tests could be um, could be opportunities to you know really solidify uh, principles of things like mutual aid. So, for instance, if if you're in space and I'm in space, the outer space treaty says, well, okay, you know, anyone undertaking activities in outer space is an astronaut, according to one reading, and astronauts have certain rights and responsibilities to one another. So, if you're in need of air. Right, I have, and I have the ability to provide aid to you. I, I am obligated to provide you with air. Right, so um, what is that? But it doesn't specify air; it just says to to render all all help. And so, what does that mean if you're, you know, low on food for the week? What does that mean if you have no place to stay? Right, if you're homeless. So there's, you know, there's the potential for you know a radically different kind of society when you follow those principles through to the to their, you know hopefully logical conclusions. Um, and then, you know, there's no sovereignty in outer space. So there's no, there's no national claim to territory that's possible um, under the Outer Space Treaty. And this was signed by 100, you know, over 100 nations. All the spacefaring nations are signatories to this. But we can claim resources. We can, we can use resources. So, um, uh, again, you know, it's going to... It's going to come down to matters of interpretation, but those matters of interpretation are already playing out, you know, in terms of lobbying for changes to law nationally and internationally, and in terms of, of uh, practices. You know, it, we'll see these things tested probably within the next five years. And didn't Trump um, pass an act or, or, or Trump passed something which said that space is not a global commons, didn't he? <laughs> This is one of the this is one of the contradictions um, that that I think you know will be interesting to watch play out um, because there's another document the Moon Agreement and this is uh, without going too far into the weeds of of international law the Moon Agreement is was not signed by any spacefaring nation it's not signed by the United States but the Moon Agreement goes a little bit further than the Outer Space Treaty and says that space and planetary bodies are are part of the common heritage of of mankind humankind. This this may be again, and I'm not I'm not a space lawyer. I have some friends who are space lawyers, but I definitely don't want to pretend to be a space lawyer. Uh, I just like to read this stuff because I read this stuff as science fiction, right? As utopian world building itself. Um, so so the idea that space is is a commons, it's kind of a foundational principle. It's why like I can put a it's why you know uh, Russia can put a satellite up that orbits over the United States and nobody's going to start a shooting war about that right because space is recognized as extraterritorial and it's built on you know principles that were you know as you hint um sort of first developed principles and practices first developed in places like the sea in antarctica um in these dangerous sort of extraterritorial spaces and so um certain you know and again i think you could you could analyze it and, and talk about Mike Pence, who loves rockets. He, he loved Mike Pence, the, the former vice president, was really the driver, I think, of space policy in the Trump administration, um, among other people. But um, the fact that they're so insecure about this principle of the commons that they have to issue an executive order, you know, on White House stationery that says space is not the common heritage of humankind. It tells you a lot. Like, it, it's actually, you know, reassuring in a way to see that, that like, that this is still contested, that this is still all in play. Mm. So 
1967 <laughs> is when the, uh, the, the 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 treaty is, is signed. Um, and like, does that does that this idea that the global commons is there? Okay, I'm going to try and make a, a link between that and like the original series Star Trek, <laughs> um, and then perhaps yeah. Star Trek generally. You know that 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 whole the whole sort of um, Star Trek as communism because scarcity has been solved because of the replicator sort of idea. I mean, right. that's one that's one sort of imaginary of outer of outer space as like this this. The solving of resource limitations uh, on on Earth, basically. Well, not just resource limitations, but also, you know, the limitations of the planetary atmospheric commons, right? Which because that's Bezos says we get, we can put polluting industries into space and so forth. Yeah, right? is that part of what's going on? It, it, in, in some ways, right? It reminded me of the whole the whole discourse around the whole dot com era. Where, where 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 the internet was seen as like oh this is where we now we we overcome the limitations of material goods etc and we'll have friction frictionless mm-hmm. capitalism but we yeah and, and of course economy. and then there's a sort of dot communism part of that where you know basically the 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 reproduction costs of of digital of digital goods are so close to zero that, it, that everything's free etc etc it seems like another way of trying trying to find a sort of like northwest passage around the the material limitations and then the antagonisms mm-hmm. that arise from those material limitations either sort of in, in terms of imperialism or or, or just straight class struggle it seems to be a, a constant search for you know a way to to escape them into another another reality is that part of what's going on with 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 the imaginaries about outer space at different times? Oh, for sure. You know, it, again, even going back to um, going back to the the weird Russians in the in the nineteenth century, it was it, it space is conceived of as as a place where you know, and there's these contradictions, right? Space is empty, but space is full. Mm. Space is is has no air; it's hard vacuum. Um, it takes forever to get from point A to B because everything's so far apart. But um, it's also presented and, and imagined as this place where there's just endless access to resources and energy available that we have, that we can mine the asteroids, we can mine the moon, we can, um, we can get out from under, you know, what they called in the 70s, quite explicitly, the limits to growth. And, you know, I think that that always is a really kind of fascinating lens to look at. Uh, to look at this stuff through, because th- there's a couple aspects to the to the replicator story, right? Which which is tied, which as you hint, is tied into like um, like the dot com era and the the lost utopias of that of that period in history. We probably, you know, we again, I always try to like qualify my we's, but we as as a technological society in Europe and North America probably already have the ability to satisfy the material needs of everyone who needs them satisfied, right? We could, we could practice mutual aid right now. We don't need a replicator, but what you see in the dot-com, the lessons that you hint at from the dot-com era is that even in post-scarcity, even in a potentially sort of post-scarcity condition, life finds a way, right? Capitalism finds a way to, to impose the, to impose those limits to, to growth, those limits to mutual aid, those limits to, um, to post scarcity, and now we pay for our MP3s. We don't, you know, we don't get them for free. We don't share them um, in a global commons of art and culture. It seems obvious to ask, like, how long? How many times are we going to fall for this? Like, how how many times are we going to really are we going to really get suckered in again and uh, and believe that we're on the cusp of a post scarcity society because we can mine the asteroids? And because, you know, that we that we have this legal framework that allows us to use the resources we find there. Um, I hope not, but probably like, you know, probably we will fall for it again. Um, But it's worth it's worth just being really explicit about like, hey, you know, they keep saying this. They keep saying the end of scarcity and want is just around the corner and that technology is the answer, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever kind of technology replicators or. or uh, LimeWire, you know, like the, the technology is going to um, solve these problems and just let us develop the technology. Just give us the support, give us the public support, give us the, the kind of cultural support to go and do it. And we'll take care of it all. And we'll bring it back. But it hasn't happened yet. And I don't think it's going to happen this time around either. And plus, you know, like there, 
there aren't infinite asteroids out there. There aren't infinite, you know, resources, even in the solar system. There's, you know, papers I've seen, the one, the one that I quote in my book says, you know, yeah, probably about, you know, given, given a 3%, 3.5% growth rate, maybe 500 years, maybe 600. Um, that's not a lot of time. So, and then we, again, we, whoever that we is, will just hit more limits. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love that, that, that 500 years. <laughs> 3% compound growth means you've got 500 years before everything in the solar system's gone. Pretty modest, yeah. And then, you know, inter, interplanetary travel is so, or inter-solar system travel is so, it's just a different ball game that, you know, and under, under our current understanding of, of physics, that's just not a, a, non, a non-starter, basically. But it, it, it sort of brings to mind this idea that, um, you know, that the search for, like, like yeah, like, like the Star Trek replicator dot communism sort of moment, in a way, it's an attempt to to solve the problems of, of Earth by bypassing politics or bypassing class struggle, even if you want to get more to it. So, so it's that, this idea that, yes, we, we, we do have the resources. Um, uh, we probably do have the resources to satisfy needs, Right. Um, but that takes you directly into a distributional struggle in which you have to take those resources off people who are very powerful, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like, it, it, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the book, Jeff Bezos could, could sort you – know, I can't remember what the website's called, which every day says has Be- – have, it's probably called Has Jeff, Jeff Bezos Solved World Hunger, isn't it? That's the, <laughs> that's the website. The yeah, Twitter it's a Twitter account, account yeah. that tweets daily. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, every day, no. Um, so perhaps the, the, the situation that we're in now in where you're, you're reaching limits to growth and there's quite stagnant growth in the world economy – uh, and you know the the climate change etc seems to to provide limits to this this expansionary imaginary what what it means is that antagonism about resources you know who has those resources is a direct problem whereas you know perhaps during that period they call the great acceleration the post war period when you had mm-hmm. growth was rising and so you could have rising living standards and capitalist profitability and they could maintain to some degree till the 1970s and then you have the big conflict about about that oil crisis yeah exactly yeah. so basically perhaps that's the world that that, that that post-war world is the world that's that's gone the world of social democracy might even be mm-hmm. be gone in that sort of form and and the world we're left with is a form a, a world in which uh, there needs to be a battle an immediate battle over resources and unfortunately we're not in a very good state <laughs> uh, um, to take the oligarchs on um is that playing into the to, to, to sort of perhaps left current left imaginaries about outer space? Well, I I find uh, I I really love the like the resurgent kind of biocosmism that you can see out there, even in even in meme culture. Um, that there's you know that the, the seemingly like the, the recapture of the seemingly like kind of ludicrous ideas from the early twentieth and late nineteenth centuries that um like you know we're the 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 father of rocket scientists, um, Solkovsky, Konstantin Solkovsky, actually believed that, you know, the human future was about being eventually able to live forever and go to space and go anywhere. And I, I love the kind of the simplicity and clarity of, of that aspiration, right? Like that, what does ultimate kind of freedom look like? Well, live forever and go anywhere. And Solkovsky, you know, had a lot of very strange ideas that followed on from that basic assumption or that basic goal. But the, you see a little bit, and maybe it's just people I follow on Twitter. um, You see a little bit of resurgence of of a resurgence in the, the embrace of the, of the ludicrous of ludicrousness of that idea. It's under the pavement, the beach, you know, that it's of a lineage with, with, I think these revolutionary slogans and these, these revolutionary aspirations. Um, I don't have a rocket company. You know, you probably don't have a rocket company. But why shouldn't everybody have a rocket company, right? I mean, it, I, have, I have a car parked outside. Um, you know, is there, is there an upside to that, the potential for technological growth that actually is liberatory? Um, if, we can, if we can liberate the means of production and the, and the means of distribution, you know, as you say, um, to, to distribute, you know, access to space. So, and then, and, and you see that, even in the, the sort of PR machines that surround um, these billionaire junkets, 
they, they congratulate each other. Even Bezos and, and uh, Musk, um, you know, longtime rivals, congratulate one another for helping make space more accessible to everyone. So every one of these flights is sort of has this round of, of utopianism, self, that's self-congratulatory, but that's also, you know, you could, you could squint at it and read it as kind of revolutionary too. Mm. I don't know if you've ever come across this group called the Association for Autonomous Astronauts. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like a 90s sort of <laughs> a group. Um, as far as I can remember, they mainly organize three-sided football matches, uh, which I'm not really mm-hmm. sure what the link to. But they, they were out of that sort of post-situationist sort of that sort of milieu, which I, I really love, basically. And then recently I came across this this sort of squatted social center in Rome called Metropolitz, um, who were really, really fascinated by space travel, and they built models of spacecraft. They didn't actually fly into the air, but models of spacecraft in there. And and one of the things I really found interesting about Metropolis was um, it was linked to, to to housing squats for migrants, basically. And there's something there about that about the sort of the need to um, well, well, in part these these housing squats were that they, they were in factories. Right in dilapidated factories, so people would move in, and you'd basically have to construct your world inside, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, when you when you look at like the the sort of like the 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 the, the habitats people built, they do remind you a little bit of like you know um, the outer worlds in the Expanse series, you know, what I mean? mm-hmm, where things are like mm-hmm. you know um, futuristic kind of bricolage and futuristic, but like basically, yeah, built out of whatever's lying about, sort of yeah. thing. Do you know what I mean? There's something there in my head about you know why why that scene would go towards some sort of probably tongue in cheek but seemingly you know sincere enthusiasm enthusiasm about space travel. It's access to space, access to resources, and access to time. You know that that's what I think. You know that that Cosmos formula of live forever mm. and go anywhere. You know, yeah. kind of captures um, and and yeah yeah that that impulse is like is always there under the surface. And I think it's, of a, that's why I especially, you know, uh, was fascinated by you all's whole episode about space, because you took that for granted that like, well, if you talk about space, it's all, it's all space. Right. And so, yeah. um, so space, the practice of producing space, you know, is something that we do every day, but it's also like something that, that happens in an imaginary utopian future. Mm. So one of the other, the other things I want to talk about I definitely want to talk about Afrofuturism because it's just it's just so so sort of like um, well because um, I, I love the whole scene <laughs> the whole Afrofuturist sort of imaginary really is to say is to, is to think about alien visitors visitations of aliens etc and and say look you know this is just isn't this a colonialist sort of mindset isn't like the the real uh, example of an of an advanced technologically advanced alien species coming and kidnapping you and putting you into forced work. Well, that's the middle passage. That's slavery. It's already happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you get all of these sort of mythoses about, you know, civilizations being, being born under the sea by, by slaves who've been thrown overboard. Um, You know, all these sorts of sorts of things fly from that. So perhaps we could talk about that colonial imaginary that is resonant in in in, in space, in, in ideas around space, both from people who such as Werner von Braun, who who basically you know that just fits with his with his picture about what must happen on Earth in in some degree, but also from people who are trying to use that and flip it in in some sort of way. Yeah, I mean there there are a couple of there are a couple of layers to that. I mean there are a ton of layers to that. You know, even back to like War of the Worlds, you know, which is which is this inversion of this. Um, this kind of colonial logic that says, okay, some more technologically advanced civilization is just going to come here and take our stuff because we've done it to, you know, we European American uh, culture historically have done it to other people. So couldn't, couldn't what we have already done be done to us somehow, some way. Um, And so there, there is like that, there is that anxiety on the part of dominant culture, you know, that's tied up in imaginations about outer space. And that's, that's sort of, that's always been there. It's, it's inextricable from um, the history of these ideas. So there is that, that recapture of like, well, that, yes, that has already happened. And, um, and what things that are bound up in black identity that are inherently, you know, science fictional, that are inherently um, constructed technologically. The other sort of strand 
that I see that um, that is relevant here is about you know th- there's there's the there's the idea of separatism too. I mean, like uh, like Sunra, you know, Sunra's movie is really clear. We're gonna go and take all the black people from Earth, and we're gonna take we're gonna we're all gonna go to another planet, and we're gonna leave this colonized world behind. I think it's tied up also with the the hope that a life in space would be a life free from politics too, in some ways. Um, because people, you know, uh, other people working in this area have been pretty explicit about, well, access to more territory means that um, an end to the culture wars say that, that we could create. There's a, there's an interview with um, Isaac Asimov and Gerard O'Neill where they're talking about, well, we can just make a Northern Ireland in space we can make we can make an Israel in space and a Palestine in space, and nobody will have to fight over the same piece of territory. So these these kind of dystopian ideas about ethnic separatism, um, but sometimes utopian ideas, are bound up in in hopeful futures in really complicated ways. Because you know, then immediately you have to ask, well, who's the who's the overarching who controls the ability of a, of a person in, in space Israel to travel to space Palestine and vice versa, right? Like who, what is the, what, there's, there's a meta politics there that's just hinted at that's not made explicit. Um, and, you know, I think that's, of course, partly a function of like people being maybe a little bit too naive. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's, again, it's tied to this, to this question of like, Life in space is a life without politics, um, which is, I think, I think, you know, and again, I'd, I'd return back to the Outer Space Treaty and go, well, the metapolitics is we're all astronauts. So the, the metapolitics is if we're all in space, we're all astronauts. And we have those rights and responsibilities that come with that status. And, you know, the about, and again, you know, tied up in the idea that, that you have the right to go anywhere and live forever um, that that's a sort of metapolitics too. And so, um, yeah, I'm pushing the limits of like where, what I've kind of thought through and definitely past the limits of what I wrote through in, in the current book. But these are the places where I think it's interesting and really necessary to go. Hmm. The other side of like a, a hopeful relationship with outer space perhaps is the sense of perspective that you'll get. So like, you know, it's, it's the famous moonrise picture, um, mm-hmm. I, I can't, you, you'll remember when that was taken, but you know, from the moon, sixty-eight, sixty-eight, yeah. Um, yeah, and and like so, and people, astronauts reporting back saying, you know, basically, it just um, gave you a bit of perspective because you couldn't see any borders, etc. You know, and right. it's perhaps it's that. So perhaps one of the hopes of or, or, or that are placed in outer space is that you get that the Martians' view of 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 humanity, basically, and why you also caught up in these fetishisms mm-hmm. that you've created yourself race will be one of those fetishisms uh, money would be another one of those fetishisms uh, i would imagine and then alongside that is a, is a certain trope in which perhaps we we'll, perhaps we'll have communists from mars right perhaps bogdanov's uh, 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 writings but also um posadas as well those are two very very interesting stories could you tell us a little bit about those and that idea of that perhaps communism comes from space yeah, I and back to back to Bontanov in the early twentieth century. You know, he was of course a revolutionary, a, a physician, um, a teacher, all these things. But um, one of the other things that he was is a science fiction author. Um, and uh, after the Re- Russian revolutions in nineteen seventeen, he was uh, he was trying to sort of connect to the masses, connect to the people in all kinds of different ways. And one of those ways was to write popular science fiction. And uh, he also did what a lot of people do when they're thinking about space is go, okay, well, Mars is the future, obviously, and uh, Venus is the past because it's closer in, in the solar system. It's hot. Mm. It's, you know, there's storms and probably jungles and dinosaurs and stuff. Mars is really dry. It's really further out. So it's, it's obviously been around for a long time. You know, we can picture these old, wise desert civilizations there that um, that tell us something about, you know, what a human future might be like. Mm. And so to Bogdanov, that human future was was a communist future because, of course, you know, following dialectical materialism, this is the, the necessary, you know, this is the science of history playing out, has already played out on this older, wiser planet. And so uh, Bogdanov 
uses Mars to kind of think through, like, like, like many people have done, to think through and critique civilization and, and political practices here on Earth. So um, actually, I think this was written before the revolution. Was it uh, was Red Star before the revolution? Might have been before. I, I, I can't remember. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't have the date to hand, but um, but in any case, you know, he's creating this utopian ideal society uh, on Mars that comes and then has to think about, you know, has to debate publicly, you know, when they discover the existence of political conflict and war on Earth and how primitive, you know, we are back here. Once they discover Earth and once they make contact with humans, they have to have that public discussion about well should we should we eradicate them and take all their stuff right like should we should we just go there and and what bogdanov arrives at is i think you know kind of an answer to this metapolitics that um that he he has his martians you know through this public debate arrive at a point where no we value we actually value difference we value um you know even though you know we are at this further, you know, point in this dialectical materialist timeline, um, and you are primitive and suffering, um, you might not end up the same way we are. And that's, that's important. And that's, that's something that should be preserved and not eradicated. That when we find difference, we don't, we don't need to automatically impose this hierarchy on difference, right? Which is a sort of, which is again, that sort of metapolitics, um, coming into play. And, um, I, I find that, you know, I kind of get chills, you know, thinking about, that you know, as as a kind of an answer to this to this colonial anxiety, um, and an answer to um, to questions of the of of teleology of the point of the end point mm-hmm. of history, you know, and the way and and uh, and questions of development, you know, what is what is development and what is what is that that ancient wisdom in the desert, you know, um, and so and, and I mean the the. This era, you know, and, and Russia generally is a fascinating place to look for uh, ideas like this because they come up again and again. And Posadaism is a, you know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert in Posadaism. Um, it's, it seems like there's a lot going on there that I don't know how far I want to get into the weeds with. But Posadaism, I think, is a kind of resurgent, you know, kind of. Uh, recognition of of those revolutionary possibilities that kind of that that tie up you know anxieties about the apocalypse um, uh, fears and hopes about difference in the other and um, uh, you know just questions about the finality of history you know, is broadly you know just to just to gloss it uh, for the listeners is the idea that that Future space aliens are communist, and um, and we should start a nuclear war to get their attention <laughs> to like really oversimplify things. And there's some open questions about like how serious was Jay Posadas about proposing these ideas. He actually didn't really talk about this that much when you go and dig in. He talked about quite a lot of other things, you know. Um, but but this is what travels, and this is what makes it, you know, to 21st century meme culture too. Is yeah. like help us, space brothers, <laughs> come and rescue yeah. us, space brothers, from uh, this dystopian world that we live in. And you know, I just I don't know what it is about about the Soviet Union that has has produced such weird and fascinating, you know, variations on this idea. But I love it. That's that's great. It's almost a great place to leave it, but I just want to want to I want to just I want to do a little bit of analysis on myself if you can help me out because <laughs> I'm because well, basically I I was always really really into into space when I was growing up. I was born in 1970. I, I had the, those sort of uh, Osborne books of the future type books, etc. Yep, I've got sitting right here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All the the um, Arthur C. Clarke stuff where he's mixing up you know the the these weird paranormal. Ideas as well, you know, that was all part of my my birth, my not my birth, my my childhood, etc. I even had a pet rat called totally Valentina Tereshkova after the yeah. first woman in space. <laughs> I was really into all of that stuff, and of course, then when you look back and you you know you you think about the 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 resources that were spent on the space race, 
uh, and you know the contemporaneous you know the song by uh, Gil Scott Heron Whitey's on the moon etc which we talked about on the main podcast but it's basically yeah. you know why are you spending this money going to the moon look at all these problems on earth i find it hard to pick to even now to pick apart my childish my childhood not necessarily childish my childhood enthusiasm for that that space race with that that bare fact that yes those resources if you were thinking about it should have been spent elsewhere of course that's a problem for now, right? And so this problem of like, you know, could Jeff yeah. Bezos end world hunger? Well, he could also go quite a long way. Those resources, we probably need those resources that Jeff Bezos has. We need them in the democratic control if we're going to deal with climate change. Do you know what I mean? Nationalize Amazon. Yeah, totally. But I yeah. find it quite hard to, to pick apart my childhood enthusiasm and, and perhaps not lose it, but like have to process that given these, you know, perhaps perhaps less childish <laughs> realities that we face. Well, you know, I, I can, I can only commiserate because that's a large, I mean, you can see from the book itself that, that the book was partly my own attempt to kind of come to terms with, with what all this means and having, you know, having grown up in the same kind of uh, milieu, like that we had all these books on our shelves you don't even, you don't even question, you know, like what, where they're coming from. It's just part of your reality. And, and, and the books say quite frankly, you know, here is your future. You're flipping through these pages. One of them is called the kids whole future catalog, you know, which is like, Oh, you know, giant cities floating on the ocean domes in Antarctica, high speed, you know, vacuum trains everywhere. Great. Let's do it. Um, so yeah. And it, it, and I think that, you know, we kind of, and you all touch on this, uh, elsewhere on your podcast it's it's kind of another one of these like long 90s moments where there was this sort of long 70s where the 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 world ended and sort of nobody knew it for a while um that that line that goes up into the right forever stopped going up into the right and um there was the wily coyote thing where you're hanging in midair before you realize that you're gonna fall and i i think that again not to what, what's been useful to me is to is to just embrace it and go, okay, Fred, yeah, you are a child of the 70s and 80s. Um, lean into it and, and take it apart and, and as you say, kind of analyze it and, and use it for use it for stuff to think out loud with. And, and that, that's been you know one of the things that this book has allowed me to do um, is to is to use the, the wreckage of, of that world that ended, you know, before we knew it as a set of things to play with and things to uh, work with in order to draw out these other, you know, more important things. Um, so, you know, we're all from somewhere, um, you know, this is kind of the meta politics too. Like, so we can't pretend to be from anywhere other than where we're from. So we might as well start from there to address and advance, you know, common tasks along with other people who are from other places. So that's really to a large extent what, what that's, perfect. that's perfect. That's perfect. It's almost it's almost sums up the ACFM project where we look at popular music and all sorts of little cultural bits <laughs> and weird things in order to get to the politics of today. So that's absolutely perfect. Hey, friends, thanks so much for talking to me. I, I, I really recommend the book. I really, really enjoyed it. It, it, apps, it, was, it was like laser pointed at my own, my own um, upbringing and my own uh, uh, interests. It was fantastic. Really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and talking. Well, thanks a lot, Kira. It was great to talk with you.